Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America, featuring today's top director sharing behind-the-scenes stories of their latest films and insights into the craft of directing. Please take a second to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode takes us behind the scenes of director Dan Fogelman's new romantic drama, Life Itself. The film centers on the story of a young New York couple who experience unexpected twists in their journey from their college romance to marriage and the birth of their first child, creating reverberations that echo across continents and through lifetimes. In addition to Life Itself, Mr. Fogelman's directorial credits include the feature film Danny Collins. Following a recent screening of the film at the DGA Theater in Los Angeles, Mr. Fogelman spoke with director Ron Howard about filming Life Itself. During their conversation, Mr. Fogelman discusses the speedy production schedule, his transition from writer to director, and working with the translator to truly capture the story in the Spanish language. That's for you, Ron. Uh, well deserved. Yeah, okay. No, well deserved. Great, great job. We all, we all really enjoyed it. Thank you. Um, and um, you know, it's complicated, rich, and bold. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know, I have so many questions about about the the movie. Uh, uh, but even before that, I just thought I'd talk, ask for a second about you, just your transition. Yeah. You know, into directing. And my and uh, uh, what you know, and the kind of command you have of the of the of the medium. What I, I, were you were you always thinking that, uh, about directing? Or was it was it writing first? Was it producing? Was it acting? Was it just the mo- you know the medium in general? Yeah, I was definitely a, I was definitely a writer first, um, and still am probably to a degree. Um, I, I'm learning as a, a director. I was never trained. I never, I never, I didn't go to film school. I'm kind of self taught. Uh, just from having made a lot of stuff and getting to be on set with a lot of directors. And uh, it's been very easy for me at times to kind of turn things over to directors that I, I get to work with and trust and learn. There's been one these one or two times where I really felt like I wanted to be in command of how the story was exactly told. I had this one in my bones a little bit, and so um, it got me there. But yeah, it's been I'm, I'm learning. And in your experience, uh, I was thinking a little bit about this, some of the transitions and... and uh, um, and and while totally character driven, it's very cinematic. Yeah. Very, and and, and uh, um, what about your experience with Pixar? Is that did that serve you? It did. Uh, as you, when you began directing. Yeah, it did. That was my. That was literally. I I started in this business. I was a production assistant around town. I worked for Howie Mandel and Jimmy Kimmel. And, uh, and then I wound up, I wrote a screenplay that never got made and it, I gave it to a buddy of mine and it got me agents and managers. And they took that screenplay, they sent it to Pixar, who was looking for a writer of their new film, a young writer who they could pay no money and would live up there indefinitely. And uh, I got that job and that became Cars. So that was essentially really my second screenplay I ever wrote. And uh, while you're up there, the way you work on animation is you're just constantly writing and remaking the movie. It's almost as if you make a movie 
and then you screen the movie and then you say, okay, that sucks, that sucks. We're going to lose that character. We're going to lose that act. But I did like that scene. I like that actor. And then remake the whole movie again and again and again and again. And so you are going to film school. You're going, oh, I see. My dialogue doesn't work as well when I do it that well that way but when i do it that way people seem to be laughing and you really get trial by fire and in that situation do you do you find yourself interacting interfacing with animators and, and, and animators storyboard artists and and, and that's how and so john lasseter up there was the guy who kind of directed that film and showed me how he would do things and yeah you write a scene and you bring it to a group of storyboard artists who are basically cartoonists animators but not they're not animating computer animation they're they're sketching and then you put my voice as Lightning McQueen or as the guy from Tangled. And we put it up editorially and see how it plays without any animation being done, none of the expensive stuff. So it's m myself working with the storyboard artists who are going, hey, I think we should have the camera swirling around Rapunzel as she's sitting and trying to get out of the tower. And so you're, you're, you're designing shots with a group, a group of guys, and I'm not quite getting the jargon I, or the lensing, but I am beginning to understand how to make, how to shoot things, yeah. Did you did you did you have storyboard artists help you with this at all, or was it all? No, we did this. Uh, there, we storyboarded out the uh, every time people were getting hit by buses, <laughs> because uh, we had very limited time to shoot that in New York City. We had a very, a very small budget on this film. This film was about I think thirteen million dollars, which for this film was very small. Um, and we had two days in New York City from like midnight to seven a.m. And so that required like a complicated filmmaking plan of like, how are we gonna get these shots done? I had Sam Jackson for an hour, you know? I, there was, I was not comfortable having Annette Benning lying on a street for very long, so I wanted to like take care of, to make it all right. Um, Cause we had to do all of the stuff, like um, when the teenage girl is looking at her parents through her POV, how are we gonna shoot this so we can use the same performance that we're actually using in their coverage from the scene much earlier? Um, how are we going to shoot the reverse of the bus through the window inside the bus? As a, so that was really complicated. Well, as a writer, also an experienced you know TV producer, showrunner, um, spent so much time in the editing room um, on, on your on, on all your shows. I'm sure. The um, uh, do you do you find yourself in a complicated situation like that? You said you storyboarded the bus stuff, yeah. but <clears throat> in general, um, do you do you tend to Start your work with the actors with a, a with a shot list with a with a with a, a specific um, plan as you've been writing it. Have you been picturing uh, visuals and and so forth? A little bit. I mean, I try. I'm a very obviously a very dialogue heavy writer, and so I try and create flexibility in the shooting so that it doesn't all um, get too precise because it's it's heightened dialogue and it's a lot of it, right? Everybody's speaking a little bit more romantically than we speak in real life. So A, the actors have to be really good, which they all are. And then B, if you're not too, if you get a little imprecise, I think it can make it naturalize it a little. So there, we, we shot the script and I did have the plan, but, um, when Oscar, Oscar Wilde, Oscar Isaac and Olivia Wilde are in bed, there's a freedom there in the way we are kind of holding the camera in a way I'm allowing them to treat the dialogue that hopefully captures an intimacy that can't just come like from a, an exacting stage play. Um, when we're very handheld here, we never laid one track at all. Um, we, I wanted, we, you know, we looked at like Tree of Life and we looked at a lot of how do you take the, the dramedy and kind of treat it 
in that way and capture a little a bit of that feeling. My my DP shot a lot by going into what we would call backpack mode by just putting the camera on his own back. It was this big and just kind of running around with people and it was the image we wanted but it had enough of that that hopefully it kind of felt like you were wa you were voyeuristically watching life. And I missed the credits, but who is the cinematographer? Uh, Brett Pollock. He uh, he's he's a very young guy who's going to be a really big deal. He he's done um he did short term 12 and all of Destin's movies thus far, as well as a bunch of other things, but he's okay. kind of, he's in his early thirties. Your first time working with him? Yes. Yeah. I, I, I worked with Steve Yedlin, my first film yeah. um, that I directed, who's done, you know, Star Wars and all of Ryan Johnson yeah. stuff. And, his, and uh, he was off in London. And so Brett had shot the pilot for This Is Us. Right. And, uh, and so, and I just had really liked a lot of the way he worked. Yeah. The, uh, well, it's, it, you know, it's, it, it's uh, uh, just remarkable the way it unfolds. And, and in, in terms of, I mean, the actors must have been in heaven, although I'm sure it's, if you were working quickly, they, they must have felt some of that stress and strain. But talk a little bit about your rapport with actors and the way you, yeah. you develop the characters. Um, my, you know, when you have actors like this, I'm sure, you know, I mean, you're not sitting and teaching Oscar Isaac how to act or redirecting him. You're trying to make everybody comfortable so that they can just be natural with all the dialogue. Um, we had a blast. Every single person had a blast on the movie. It's a lovely group of actors. Um, the first two days of shooting, we had a very tight schedule. We actually had a very loose schedule. We had a very tight schedule with Oscar Isaac, who was very busy. Um, and then in New York, we had a great amount of time for an indie film. And then Spain was completely compressed. We shot all of Spain in seven days. Um, which was like half the film. We shot at one location, um, which was this glorious farmhouse with its own, uh, you know, olive oil, olive fields. And um, Antonio Banderas would get dressed upstairs. And we just banged that out in Spain. But in, in New York, it was pretty lax. We'd be rapping at three and going out drinking with the crew every day because we didn't know what to do. Um, because the first week was all Oscar and we had no time with him. So Annette Benning and Oscar started the movie. We went into the therapy office and that was... Uh, we shot 40 pages of dialogue between them in two days. And uh, I would just move the camera around the room and we took it in chunks and then at the end we did it all together like a stage play and it was awesome. I mean, we did everything ex up until the gunshot um, which required some technical stuff and we'd just take it all the way there and I got to watch Oscar Isaac and Annette. And so all I would do was kind of t explain to them what part the plan of that day, here's where we're going up to this part today and I think we'll call it. And then I would say, I'm going to start on Oscar. I keep them informed. I felt Annette's an act, actor who's like a, a racehorse. And as long as she kind of knows exactly what's going on, it takes away that stress for her. So I like to communicate a lot. And I would say once in a while, I would say like, hey, Oscar, like let's pull back on the emotion. Let's take one that's a little more, a little funnier and a little lighter when you're talking about the heavy stuff. But for the most part, it was really just like sitting at a play and watching people. Yeah, remarkable. Yeah. That's been amazing. It was experience. pretty awesome. Well, performances are terrific throughout, and um, uh, are you, I, I assume you're fluent in Spanish. I'm not, and so <laughs> that was a big challenge. Uh, I, I wrote it in English, had it translated to Spanish, worked with a translator, memorized the script, um, and then started taking Spanish lessons again. I speak Spanish, but not. I, I was good in high school, okay in college, and now it's been 20 years. So, uh, So I had to brush back up. We worked with an entirely, we, after we wrapped in New York, we hired an entirely Spanish crew and cast in, in Spain. So the, um, every cameraman was Spanish, and I tried to only direct in Spanish, which was a disaster, but it made everybody laugh. <laughs> and, uh, 
And so when the actors, and I give flexibility to the actors, I, I don't care about the syntax. If they say, uh, instead of the, and if they change a little bit of words here and there, I think that's part of the process. And if something really bothers me, I'll ask them to go back to script, but it rarely does. In Spain, you know, when an actor would go off book for a line, like I normally allow in English, I would lose because they're talking so fast and a sentence goes awry from what you have in your mind's eye and suddenly you've lost your place. It's like losing your place in a book. And I would just be like, I think Banderas is wonderful here. I have no idea what he's saying. And, uh, and so, uh, and, and so uh, that, it was a challenge, but it was, it was really fun. Yeah. Well, did, did, you, did a writer come in and do the translation yeah. for you? With me, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And would explain to me like, hey, I want to go off book here because it wouldn't translate properly. And then my big thing became, you know, it was because I had this rhythm in English in my head, how far can I stretch the, spa the English translation on screen? So it caused me to actually go into a bunch of uh, subtitled films and like kind of talk to people and talk to subtitle companies saying, how exacting are they being here? Because when we watch subtitle films, we're not, usually you're not saying, that's not exactly what they're saying, you're either reading or you're either listening. And so, um, we tried to do it the right way by the same rules. Um, yeah. The, um, you know, this is a little bit more of a writer question, but you're a writer director in this case, you know, you're going to direct it. Um, the, you know, talk some, talk to me a little bit about the thematics, uh, of it and, and maybe the, 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 the inspiration for the, for the, for the movie, the idea, the tone, yeah. the approach, it's, 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 it's quite original. Yeah. I mean, I just wrote it. I, uh, I sat down, I wrote the first five pages with Sam Jackson. I had no idea, I thought it would be, I thought it was an interesting way to start a film. And I just kept writing. And after about a year, I had the screenplay. And it's very much the movie. Um, I revised as I went, it evolved as I went. And then I finished it, and that's when I was like, oh, I see. Because I, I really, and it's not, I just, it kind of was like I stepped out of myself, aside of myself. When I had written films like Crazy Stupid Love, I thought about, I normally have a process where I think about the film for a while globally in my head and then I go away and write it very quickly and I knew Crazy Stupid Love would be a movie about a group of people who all love the wrong people and at the end you reveal the son is actually the daughter the girl is actually the daughter of the dad this I didn't have any plan I just wrote and then at the end I was like oh I see what I'm chasing you know my I've talked about it quite a bit but my mom had passed away 10 years ago um, she died very suddenly very unexpectedly she died in surgery um, so for me, it was, it was kind of a version of the bus crash. It was kind of, I would describe it as, uh, watching your person, like losing a person, your person in a car accident, you're driving the car and you're watching the whole thing and you don't get a scratch on you. And that was kind of how it felt. And then, uh, I went into a really dark hole, like the movie would say it was the body blow of my life that kind of took me to my knees. And then a year to the day after I met my wife. Um, and so I wasn't consciously thinking about any of that as I was writing the film, but I think that's very much what it's born out of when I'm psychoanalyzing myself. Yeah. And the the the, the shifts in time were they, they just sort of evolved during the during the writing, and did you did you refine that further? You know, during yeah. during the rewrite process. Yeah, my process is uh, I kind of rewrite as I go usually. So my process, like very uh, structurally, is I'll write you know let's call it seven to ten pages a day, and uh, and then for the next five days of writing, I always go back to the first ten, seven or 10 pages each time and revise them. I'll 
sometimes go, oh, none of that worked. I'll cut that all out, and then I'll add to it, and then I'll go back. And then at a certain point, the process starts moving along. I'm no longer going back to pages one through seven. I'm starting on page 35 and kind of doing that until I get to the end. So by the time I'm finished, that's that was very much the script, and the script is almost exactly what's on the screen right now. We there were very there were very few rewrites because it was so intricately kind of had to be woven. You couldn't start pulling threads out. Yeah, so that that was uh, and uh, the actors kind of all came in. I kind of worked a couple of things with Oscar um, and Antonio, but not a lot. And and that was kind of, it just held. Yeah. So playing in time was, you know, it, it was almost like you couldn't pull the strings out too much because everything else just kind of starts collapsing upon itself. So that answers the question. In terms of post, it was it was, it was was mostly a matter of just just putting it together as, as planned. Yeah, and finding the right performances and hopefully tone and, you know, it was it's a tonal challenge of the film because it's meant to be seven different tones and um so the beginning is very odd and very funny and there are parts of it where you're in a really sweet romantic comedy and then there are parts that are obviously very dark uh and dramatic and so i think there's things figuring out things like an editorial is figuring out after oscar's suicide which is obviously the 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 big kind of shock and it meant to be to kind of um, how do you get the audience back from that? How do you give everybody enough time to be able to say, and so choosing to just kind of hold on the empty room for quite a while to kind of give that breath and then finding the tone and the timing of when Mandy Patinkin talks to the little girl, which is where people start coming back into the film again a little bit. They start going, okay, like I'm not going to walk out of this movie theater right now. Um, and, uh, and so finding that is a real editorial challenge. But I edited during... I, w I shot this between the two seasons of my TV show. And so I edited it as we were shooting it because I knew I wasn't going to quite have time to come back and edit. And so when I came back, we really started screening at, mm -hmm. in mass because I wanted to see how it would play. And did you learn much from the screenings? Or? We did. I mean, what we learned that was surprising was like, um, I thought this mo the movie's coming out next week on like uh, 3,000 screens. Like I never thought that was gonna happen. It was a small film. I thought it would come out in one theater in New York and one theater in Los Angeles and if people liked it, maybe some other people would get to see it and my family would never see it. <laughs> maybe they'd see it on an airplane one day. And, uh, and so what, we, what started happening- They don't have Amazon Prime. No, <laughs> yeah, exactly, no. <laughs> and uh, so yeah, we started, uh, we started screening and the response was so strong. Um, particularly we took it to Kansas City and we, I was like unsure if an audience would go with all the tonal shifts and, uh, and the Spanish and it was, it was a very rewarding experience going to Kansas City and Banderas is like has a moment or a line in the middle of his 12 minute monologue when it's just in Spanish and you can hear a house laugh in, this, in, in Spanish in Kansas City and we're like wow something that's pretty cool like this it's playing and obviously the crying was, was something that started happening and people were having a really strong emotional reaction. And so that we learned a couple of things in that, in the testing. Um, but really it was kind of like very validating on this one where sometimes you kind of like don't know what to do. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes, you do. Yeah. That's right. Um, the, um, well, I'm kind of curious about one thing. Your experience is so immediate right at this moment. Um, it, you know, in terms of, both mediums, yeah, movies and television, and I, you know, of course, we all, I think, we all feel those lines are blurring, yeah. pretty, pretty uh, significantly, and yet there still are some differences. So you've written for both, you've direct, you haven't really directed television, have you? I have not. Yeah. Um, but, but you certainly, you know, uh, as a showrunner, yeah, I, I understand it totally. The 
talk about the differences, if you or, or differences that, that that you you think still exist. Um, you know this contrast between movies and television yeah. as a, as a sort of a discipline. Yeah. Well, the lines are certainly blurring from even from when I started doing it. Um, I mean, this the I think for something to hold as a film, you need to have a plot line, even if it's a small film, that compels that has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And that, to me, that's like one of the biggest things is episodes of television need to have beginning, middle, and ends, but the end is really just something to set you forth to the continuation into the next episode. This really, I, I, you need to have a plot that I think draws people in. And when I make films, or when I've worked on films, like I, I it's, it's getting outdated, but it's for this process. Hopefully you're lucky enough to get a group of people in a room and so that you can feel a laugh or the emotion of a room and you can feel an audience kind of having to focus for two hours. Um, there is something about television. I, I watched, I was very excited this year to show, or last year it was, to show my family early episodes of my television show. They were in town. I was like, everybody's talking about my show. Do you want to see it? And I, I noticed as I was showing it, they were all on their phones. And uh, I said, like, Dad, I've seen this before. Like, I don't need to play this for you. And he said, this is how we watch TV. And, uh, and I remember thinking, that's okay because people are in the comfort zone. But you don't get people's rapt attention on a screen for two hours necessarily. And so um, you, uh, for me, that's a little bit of the difference. Not like I want people tuning out of a show, but to me, like, you have to have that plot that dictates people coming to a movie theater. And from a directorial side. Yeah. What what sort of what, what sort of uh, differences do you still find? I think bigger. I mean, I think um, there's a scope to film I, film that TV doesn't have to have to be very successful. Um, I think our TV shows are getting bigger um, now with all the Netflix and Amazon and all that stuff happening. The concepts are getting bigger, and people's television screens are literally getting bigger. Plus the you can shoot faster and you can shoot and the faster. cameras are you know i mean you can you you can actually you can get more yeah. for the for the price at the, at the price point yeah. and in the time yeah and same goes the opposite way for for film too because film is getting smaller in that way where you know because you can run if you it's not my style but if you want to run 17,000 hours of improvisation and choosing the edit bay it's not going to kill your day necessarily and you're not it's not going to cost you a fortune so i think the worlds are kind of shifting in that way um but, but honestly, like sometimes for me, like I, I don't see that much of a difference in, in terms of tone any, like, because ultimately you're telling a story and, and the kind of stuff I like doing and a lot of the stuff obviously you've done so successfully, it mixes comedy with drama and that's all about tone and intimacy of the moments. And it doesn't matter if you're watching it on a giant screen or on a little screen at home sometimes um, to capture that. Yeah. Um, do, do you... Uh I mean, you're so you're so busy with your your career as a as a you know it was a TV producer writer. Do you, are you already looking forward to your next film as a director, or do you have other 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 things to do now for a little while and, um, and waiting for an idea? Yeah, maybe I'm tired. I need a little break. My <laughs> wife wants me to take a break. Yeah. We had this really strange if, uh, between us directors. We had a strange experience this week. Um, we took the film to the Toronto Film Festival and we opened it there. And you know, I've been. I've now been screening this movie for a year. I've screened it for everyone from Warren Beatty and Barbara Streisand who, you know, to audiences, to critics early. And we kind of had a sense of uh, how it's playing and how fancy people are responding. We went to Toronto and the film opened and it got like a five minute standing ovation. It was very exciting. 
And then the critics just came out with their teeth bared. Mm. And uh, it's been it's been so surprised. It's been a little confounding to us. We expected there would be a, a portion of cynical critics that mm. wouldn't be able to like tolerate this film, and we were prepared for that. The viciousness and the bringing my TV show into it was it was a very strange experience. So when you ask like, am I excited to direct my next movie? Like my legs have been taken out for me a little bit because it was just such a bizarre experience so far but i'm excited because audiences have been continuing to respond to it that and i think it'll balance out but um you really put yourself especially with a film like this you really it is a strange exposing feeling when you put something out in this day and age as dark and cynical as the world is and something that kind of it's it's been a bizarre week yeah well i mean just a um a little bit of the dga cone of silence the reality is that when they when there's something to write about as yeah. as sort of significant as oh here's this show yeah. here's a movie here's the individual involved they're sort of related in some ways not related in other ways yeah. um, and uh, it um, and yet and and it's so distinctively uh, different yeah. and sort of I think um, you know I mean if, if my 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 guess is that all dies down and and a very unique very distinctive movie stands on its own I think so and I think too. all these things kind of become what they become yeah. Kind of after uh, you know uh, the, that that moment where they're doing their own thing, yeah. which is to try to be noticed or be loud yeah. or something themselves. Yeah. So it's just it's such a, yeah, it's been interesting. Yeah, I totally agree. And uh, it seems like such an odd thing to be vicious about this particular film. <laughs> like like it's it's like uh, you know what I mean. Like a film well, with I like read that. Them, so I don't know. I can they, laugh here. They're, but, uh, they're, uh, they've right. been pretty weird, but uh, but anyway, it's it is true, and I think. Uh, it's it's been nice watching audiences react and and having people reach out and like um, and so that's it's been nice and I'm sure it will balance out. Oh, yeah, I, know, I know it will. Your actors must be in in heaven. I mean, they're yeah. impeccable performances. Yeah, uh, and they're also lovely. I, you know what I found? I, I don't know if you found it, but when you're when you're dealing in this tone, which is like you're hopefully mixing a bunch of tones, and there's you want people to be charmed and have comedy, and then also have. God, it helps if you, your actors are actually really nice people because it comes through, I think, on the, on the screen. And they really are kind of all great. And uh, so, yeah, I think they're all really excited. And I think, you know, for like uh, the Spanish portion is really exciting for me because I think Banderas is so great in this role. And, fantastic. and he's such a movie star that people forget what a gifted actor well, he I is. Imagine we have Picasso. him. In, he's in Picasso. Yeah. And, and he was just, uh, you know, he was really... Stunning to behold, he's amazing. and, and uh, I think he's hitting, a, you know, a kind of a, yep. a stride where, where, and and I still think he he loves it, and um, and 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 wants to prove, yep. you know, um, and test it, test himself, but also prove what he's always felt is that you know he has a lot to offer. Yeah, he's and he's so wonder. He does feel like he's like he really is like realizing like uh, like how reminding himself how good he is again and he's so good in Picasso he did my film before Picasso and so I actually got to see Picasso after I'd always seen the film I'm like man he's rolling right yeah, now yeah um well the um um from a from a the um a, a music standpoint I mean did you always did you always have the Dylan song and I, as a kind of a thematic as a center post in a way I did I went I I started writing with the Sam Jackson scene I put on my iTunes that album came on I started listening to it. I wrote it into the opening because I just started hearing it. And I kept going back to that album as I was writing. And eventually I said, what if this was the soundtrack? And I loved it. I've always loved the album. Wasn't really thinking about even getting the movie made. I was just writing. But I, I had made it to the end of the film and I knew how the film was going to end now in my head. I wasn't quite sure how the Dylan stuff was all going to tie together. 
and I was in a bookstore with my wife and standing in the middle of the bookstore was an anth on one of those um, staff pick tab tables where the staff was an anthology of Dylan criticism, like staring me in the face. And I opened it up to the album and this writer, this cr music critic was bashing the song, Make You Feel My Love, calling it the lone wart, the lone wart on this otherwise very unsparing album. And I was like, oh my God. And it was Valentine's Day. My wife and I were downtown. We were in a bookstore. And I told my wife we had to go home because I had to go finish the movie because I figured out like what the oh, theme is. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and it was vicious. The guy was really coming after the one song. And I was like, that, that's the song everybody knows. You know? and, uh, and so I thought that was so funny. But yeah, and then after I had written it, like many things in the movie, like Sam Jackson or other things, everyone was like, this is so great. And I love the Dylan. How did you get him to give you all the music? I'm like, oh, I don't, I don't know Bob Dylan. And so then we had to go to Bob Dylan's camp and convince them to give us like 12 songs. And, and uh, it was a process, but he, yeah. And um, back to the logistics, you, you talked about how quickly you had to do, um, uh, you know, the stuff in New York and yeah. in, in Spain. What was your shooting schedule? I feel like we were around 33 days. Mm -hmm. um, 33 to 35 days. I think we we're in that range. We cut a couple of days at the end in Spain because it was tight. And, and in terms of your relationship with, um, with, with, with Amazon as a studio, yeah. um, you, you brought the script as a spec script or something? You'd no, read? it was actually, it was, it was an unusual one, this one. So what had happened with the movie was uh, we had, I just made it independently financed with Film Nation, who made Arrival and Big Sick last year, um, and we didn't have a studio. We went, we made the movie, um, and then after it was done, we had gotten into Sundance. There were high hopes of what was gonna happen in Sundance. I had been screening the movie for such fancy, highfalutin people that people were starting to talk about the reaction, the emotional reaction to the movie. And a bunch of studios came in preemptively saying, we wanna not take, let you take it. And they all came and screened the movies and then kind of had a bunch of studios came in and Amazon wound up getting it. Oh, I see. And so um, Amazon basically picked it up to distribute it. Right. Right. Yeah, but without without normally the kind of thing that would happen at a film festival. Yeah, but also pretty pretty great at Film Nation too. They were awesome, and and, and they were they were also. I had these great producers. Glenn Basner runs Film Nation, but these guys, Aaron Ryder and Marty Bowen. I don't know if you've yeah. ever come across them, and yeah. they were so supportive from go. And we were t somebody the other day. I was doing a, a Q and A, and they were like, "Was it hard to convince anybody to make a movie for thirteen million dollars where half of it is going to be in Spanish?" And I realized, holy shit, no, it wasn't hard. Nobody ever challenged that. And you realize like, when you have really supportive people around you um, that, that uh, you, sometimes it was so easy because they made it so easy that, that you realize. We've got to wrap it up, but yeah. I have one last uh, yeah. question. Stylistically, shifting over to English for the mother's final uh, yeah. speech, was that, uh, did you shoot it two ways? Did you just make the leap? Did you decide that was a, make, you just made the commitment? It was written that way, and uh, I thought it would be a, cool like final kind of thing on playing with the, who's telling the story and how we're telling it um and then the actress did it what happened with her her name's Lia Costa she only started acting professionally about five years ago she's now won BAFTAs I mean it's she's crazy and uh she I'd cast all the American roles and and Antonia and was going to go over to Spain to cast the Spanish roles she had gotten her hands on the script and got me she read on to to her husband on camera every scene in the movie that she was in, starting with that final scene. And she basically auditioned, I still have it, it basically exactly as the final scene is shot, like this close to the camera. And I saw it and I said, oh my, well, that's it. And I never read another actor for the part, I just cast her. Um, but yeah, it was always in English. Well, so, so many great details. I'm frankly uh, looking forward to look, seeing it again. Thank you. Because when you, you know, I think just to track it all and the subtlety and the twists and turns, uh, remarkable achievement. 
and thanks for coming in. Well, thank you. Right, right, thank you. You're like my hero. I can't believe that I'm here with you. So. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. If you'd like to hear more, you can find past episodes of The Director's Cut wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll have a lot more for you in the coming weeks as award season approaches, including Q&As from Drew Goddard, Bradley Cooper, and Damien Chazelle. So be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Take a moment to rate and review us on iTunes. You can help fellow cinephiles find the show. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally. 